0: good morning so if you've been with us for any amount of time um, or I guess an extended amount of time you've, you've likely noticed that we don't have a regular guy preach we change it up quite a bit and we do that with intentionality we we think the church is healthiest we, we have a conviction I should say that the church is healthiest whenever we we see that the body the individual members of the body utilize gifts that the spirit has given us to teach, to show hospitality, uh, whatever that gift might be, not just on a Sunday morning, but in all of life, uh, we think the church is healthiest and most balanced whenever we see that and and manifested on a Sunday morning is the most clear way we see that. So we take advantage of the way God's gifted individuals in this church to teach, and we have different people teach. However, we also have a conviction that elders, the the God-ordained elders and church-affirmed elders of the church bear the weight of responsibility for casting vision and shaping the church. There's an authority when an elder teaches that's not always there, but that authority is uh, one of a servant uh, to, to go before God as a representative for the church, recognizing Christ as the head of the church in every way. So I say all that this morning, and we don't say it every morning, as an opportunity to explain, as a teachable moment, because we do have those who are not elders and those who are not pursuing eldership teach sometimes, and that may be confusing to some. So uh, this morning we happen to have someone who is gifted to teach and does it for a living, um, but also is gifted in particular to answer the question that we're answering this morning in our series. So I'm going to invite Kevin Bear up, and he's going to teach for us this morning, and also would like to pray for him, thanking God that, that he's given this man of science to us uh, <laughs> as a gift, uh, and he's going to Be a member of the body, equipping and encouraging like any member could and should for the health of the church, for the sake of the mission. Let's pray for Kevin. Father, I'm so grateful for my brother. I thank you for the blessing he is to me personally and the blessing he is to our church. I thank you that you have gifted him in many ways, but in particular uh, with the ability to teach. And as we'll see this morning, not just teaching any information, but gifted by your spirit to teach from your word in a way that would Uh, pierce and convict and encourage and equip your people for your glory. And so more than uh, thanks for Kevin, I thank you for the gift that Kevin is. I thank you for giving us all we need. I thank you for being a faithful father who loves us in every way. I pray that you would fill him with confidence right now to proclaim your truth, Uh, not seeking any advantage in himself, not seeking any platform for himself, but with a humble spirit, seeing Christ exalted, because I know that's his desire. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, thank you for that. I hope I can live up to that. Well, good morning. Good morning. We, uh, as Kendrick has said, we have been uh, conducting a, a series entitled Asking for a Friend, and today is Science and Faith. Is science and faith in conflict? Can you still be a scientist and believe in God? Well, yes. I can say that. Um, so I'm standing here as a scientist and as a believer. Now, I, I definitely won't uh, address every issue on this topic, um, but we'll explore the, uh, the so-called tension between science and faith, the differences. We're gonna see where they overlap. I'll throw in uh, some apologetics, and uh, hopefully we can uh, give a perspective for honest dialogue. Just a little bit about my, my background. Uh, my scientific career began about 40 years ago, believe it or not, with a uh, B.S. degree, Bachelor of Science degree in biology, and then a Ph.D. in pharmacology and toxicology, um, then a, uh, as a research fellow um, for the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, then w- went all the way up to Delaware, uh, worked for a DuPont company as a research toxicologist, but the uh, the last 25 years, I've been at ULM as a professor in, in toxicology with my own research program in environmental um, toxicology. I've played the uh, publish or perish game. Okay. Um, I've published um, scientific articles in, in my field, written book chapters. Um, I've presented at regional and national and international uh, meetings, successful in obtaining grant funding, and I've mentored masters and PhD students. Now i say all this, just um, now hopefully you can have faith that I'm a scientist. <clears throat> but I want to point out, I'm definitely not at the same level of some of those scientists that I will reference today, okay? I am a small fish in a large, large pond, a little bitty larval species, okay, in the ocean. But I do understand the, uh, the, the process and the scientific method. And so during all of, uh, of my career, I've interacted and I've collaborated with uh, numerous scientists um, from uh, diff- various disciplines, religions, and, and world views. And I, and I think that the, the religious perception is that scientists um, do not believe in God, okay? that they're all atheists, and they look at people of faith as um, ignorant, superstitious bigots. Uh, that is not entirely true. I know many scientists that have embraced faith and Christianity. A recent survey taken by the American Association for the Advancement of Science found that 51% of scientists believe in God. 41% do not. I guess the other 8% are still trying to to figure it out. Uh, These numbers haven't changed much over the last 100 years, despite the numerous discoveries that we've seen in evolution and and genetics and biochemistry. Now, my first mentor in graduate school was a Christian and quite an accomplished scientist. And I heard him give a a talk um, early on in my career that was entitled, The Detoxifying Role of the Spirit, Combining Religion and Toxicology. So stay with me on this, okay? Um, being a, a good toxicologist, he knew the important role of the uh, liver in detoxifying chemical pollutants. So it's important to keep a healthy relationship with the liver. Take heed, Scott Bonner. Um, <clears throat> but, but it's the same as, as being in step with the spirit in regards to toxic or immoral elements that, that seek to harm our spiritual health. Okay, So he made that connection. Well, anyway, as a young scientist, um, this was very encouraging to me um, to hear my mentor in science talk about his faith, and this motivated me to do the same. Um, I've always been fascinated with the, uh, with the beauty of the natural world, uh, and as I learned about biology and biochemistry and genetics and physiology, you know how the body works, um, it only deepened my faith and uh, awesomeness of the great uh, designer and creator. And this is true throughout history, as men and women uh, made scientific discoveries. But we have to recognize that there is a conflict between some scientists and faith. One cynical atheist said, science flies you to the moon, religion flies you into buildings. But the tension is is really not between science and faith, but between worldviews and bias. And here's a case in point. When President Barack Obama announced announced on July 8, 2009, that he would nominate the renowned geneticist Francis Collins to be the new director of the National Institutes of Health, a number of scientists publicly questioned whether the nominee's devout religious faith should disqualify him for the position. In particular, some worried that an outspoken evangelical Christian who believes in miracles might not be the right person to fill what many considered uh, to be one of the nation's most visible jobs in science. But he was was confirmed unanimously. Um, However, the controversy over his nomination reflects a broader debate within the scientific community between those who believe religion and science each examine legitimate but different realms of knowledge And those who see science as the only way, the only true way of understanding the universe. Now, there are some scientists who set out with a bias and preconceived ideas. They don't really want to discuss the evidence that the Bible has. Um, they they, They appear to be fixated, not on the pursuit of truth, but on propagating the notions that science and God do not mix. And those who believe in God are simply ignorant. The Big Bang Theory. This fits in quite nicely with the biblical narrative of creation. But when this theory was first published, a lot of scientists dismissed it because it seemed to support the biblical story. That's a bias there. Some comments are especially vicious. Steven Weinberg, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, states uh, the world needs to wake up from a long nightmare of religion. Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may in fact be our greatest contribution to civilization. In in 2013, the Nobel Prize in physics uh, was won by Peter Higgs, an atheist, uh, for his work on subatomic particles. But years before... The Nobel Prize in Physics was won by William Phillips, a Christian. Okay? So what's, what gives here? Uh, and if, if science and God do not mix, would there ever be any Christian Nobel Prize winners? In fact, between 1900 and 2000, over 60 percent of Nobel laureates were self-confessed believers in God. So what dif- divides Hicks, um, Higgs and Phillips is not their physics. Okay? It's not their excellent standing as scientists. What divides them is their worldview. Okay? There's an essential there, there is not an is an essential um, conflict b- between being a scientist and having faith in God. But there's a very real conflict okay, between the worldviews ha- held by these two men, atheism and theism. So simply, atheism, what does it mean? It means um, a lack in the belief of God. But scientific um, atheistic scientists still have a worldview and beliefs about the natural world. Richard Dawkins states in his "God Delusion" book, "This universe multiverse is all that exists. That what science call mass energy is the fundamental stuff of the universe, and there is nothing else." What an arrogant statement he's making! He's making a judgment here. He is he's saying that you know, in order to say this statement. Um, you need to have infinite knowledge. But this is a finite being here. It's a very arrogant statement. Physicist uh, Sean Carroll, in his book, The Big Picture, explains naturalism, how naturalism views humans. You'll like this, this will make you feel good. Um, we humans are blobs <laughs> of organized mud, which through the impersonal workings of nature's patterns have developed the capacity to contemplate and cherish and engage with the intimidating complexity of the world around us. The meaning we find in life is not transcendent, beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. Okay? That's his worldview. But for Christians, okay, life has a glorious transcendent meaning. And, and science, far from undermining this view, strongly supports it. It is atheism to which science gives little support. The Christian worldview is a belief that there's an intelligent God who created, ordered the world, upholds the universe. He made human beings in his image, uh, meaning that, they, that we have the endowed, we've been endowed with the capacity to not only understand the universe around us, but also to get to know and enjoy fellowship with God Himself. Robert Jastro was a PhD in the- theoretical physics from Columbia. It's an interesting statement that he makes. He says, there's a strange ring of feeling and emotion in scientists on such matters as the origin of the universe. You would expect their judgments to really come from the brain, but part of the answer is scientists cannot bear the thought of a natural phenomenon which cannot be explained naturally. And this is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under the conditions in in which the laws of physics were invalid. Okay. And he goes on to say, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends up like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak of discovery. He pulls himself over the final rock and he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <clears throat> so unfortunately, now some scientists with this bio- biased uh, worldview are on the attack okay, to destroy faith of young students in the universities. We have, to, we have to recognize that. Recently, atheistic, sci- atheistic scientists have become quite vocal, and uh, books have been published that attack Christianity. Um, these include Christopher Hitchens, I've already mentioned Richard Dawkins, uh, Peter uh, Singer, the late Stephen F. Gould, and Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking. And let's look at some of these arguments and some of the counter arguments. Now I'm gonna be pulling from different resources and uh, there's a lot of resources on uh, Ravi Zacharias's website, rzim.org. Um, so um, I'm not going to uh, um, go into a lot of the, the counter arguments, but uh, it's a good resource for you if you're interested to pursue the, uh, more on this topic. Okay, according to the late Stephen Hawking, I think you've heard about him, Uh, The laws of physics, this is what he states, the laws of physics, not the will of God, provide the real explanation as to how life on Earth came into being. And in his last book, this renowned physicist uh, mounted a challenge to the traditional beliefs that that we hold in the divine creation of the universe. Now, one Christian scientist um, to counter these challenges is John Lennox. He's a Northern Irish mathematician, he specializes in group theory. He's a philosopher of science, and he's a Christian uh, apologist. He's an emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford and emeritus fellow in mathematics and philosophy of science at Green Temple uh, College, Oxford University. Yeah, got some impressive credentials here. But according to Hawking, the Big Bang was the inevitable consequence of the laws of physics because there are physical laws such as gravity And the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But Lennox responds here that this claim is misguided, to ask us to choose between God and the laws of physics as if they were in mutual conflict. Physical laws, as he says, can never provide a complete explanation of the universe. Laws themselves do not create anything. They're merely a description of what happens under certain conditions. The laws of physics could never have actually built the universe Some agency, as Lennox states, must have been involved. C.S. Lewis states um, states it in a similar way. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. Here's a simple analogy. Isaac Newton, remember that guy, the laws of motion, now, he believed in God, although he had some strange ideas about the, uh, the Trinity, but he was a believer in God. But the, uh, his laws of motion okay, in themselves never sent a three-point buzzer-winning shot through the basketball hoop, okay, like I do all the time in my dreams. But you no, know, there's an agency or person like Larry Bird, okay, who's sending the ball through the net, Hawking states that the existence of gravity means uh, the creation of the universe was inevitable. But how did gravity exist in the first place? Who put it there? And what was the uh, creative force behind its birth? Hawking continues with support of his theory of spontaneous creation. He says it was only necessary for the blue touch paper, which is a slow burning paper fuse, to be lit. To set the universe going. Again, okay. Where did this blue touch paper come from, and who lit it, if not God? Okay. Much of the rationale um, behind behind uh, Hawking's argument lies, in I in this idea, as we've mentioned, that there's a deep-seated um, conflict between science and faith. But as Lennox so eloquently states, as a man of faith, okay, the beauty of the scientific laws only reinforces his faith in an intelligent divine creative force at work. The more he understands science, the more he believes in God because of the wonder at the breadth and sophistication and integrity of his universe and creation. And the very reason science flourished in the 16th and 17th centuries was precisely because of the belief that the laws of nature, which were then being discovered and defined, reflected the influence of a divine lawgiver, Far from hindering the rise of modern science, faith in God was one of the motors that, that drove scientific discoveries. There's many examples here. I'll just give you a few. The father of the Big Bang Theory was actually a Catholic priest. The pioneer of modern genetics was an Augustinian monk. The decoder of the human genome converted from atheism to Christianity. Blaise Pascal, I mentioned, Newton, Sir Francis Bacon, other famous names in science were all committed Christians. And throughout scientific discoveries, most became stronger Christians because of it. Now, one of the most fundamental themes of Christianity, again, as I mentioned, is is that the universe was built according to a rational, intelligent design. Far from being at odds with science, the Christian faith makes absolutely perfect scientific sense. Okay. You may have heard some of these analogies before, but consider this. Okay. You're walking on a beach, and you see um, a few letters of the alphabet spelling out your name. What's your immediate response? Okay. Somebody did this. Okay. It wasn't a crab. It wasn't a seagull. Um, this is a work of an intelligent agent. Um, so how much more likely, then, is the intelligent creator behind the human DNA. This database contains no fewer than 3.5 billion letters. Um, Let's look at some of the uh, the most uh, um, significant scientific discoveries in the last 100 years that point strongly to the existence of God. I'll briefly examine a few. I've already mentioned the, uh, the Big Bang Theory. If the universe had a beginning, right, Um, if it had a beginning, what's the cause of that beginning? How did it go from not being a universe at one point in time to being a universe? What would that cause have to look like? Linux states this, in order for something to be the cause of the universe, it would have to be outside of space and time because it would have created space and time. And to be the cause of all this, it would have to be highly intelligent, highly powerful, highly creative. And so we are pointed toward the existence of something that is highly intelligent, highly powerful, highly creative, and outside of space and time. Does this sound like somebody we know? Um, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now, the earth was formless. And empty darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, so this leads to the theory of evolution. We could spend a lot of time on that, uh, but we won't. Um, is evolution compatible with Scripture, with the the God of the Bible? And first, you have to distinguish between uh, macroevolution and microevolution. There's not just one monophilic monolithics, uh, excuse me, theory of evolution. There are all kinds of, of theories here. But microevolution means that there are developmental changes within species, and that's, that's well documented. Okay, I mean, we have bac- uh, bacterial strains that are acquiring antibiotic um, uh, resistance. We have, you know, insects that are developing uh, resistance to pesticides. We have moths that um, they change it. Um, they have been designed to change colors um, from, a, from a, a lighter pattern to a darker pattern to be more camouflaged, okay, uh, uh, when, when they uh, light on a tree to prevent being eaten by a bird. So those are, those are changes, okay, microevolution. Um, but macroevolution, okay, that's a whole philosophical view where all life emerged fortuitously from a single cell, from primordial slime, that plus time plus matter plus chance without intelligence has resulted in all we see, you know, as Ravi Zacharias states. Okay? It's a whole philosophical view. Another analogy, if you walk into a planet okay, and you see a hamburger wrapper and see letters of an alphabet, you immediately know that there is information there. You know? And logic tells you that where you see information, you assume that prior to that information, is a mind. Okay? The dictionary did not um, develop due to an explosion in a printing press. Okay? There's a sequence to it. <laughs> you take the composition of an enzyme. Okay? The enzyme, the building block of the gene, the, the gene, the building block of the cell. The possibility of the human enzyme coming together by random chance this, um, is um, stated by uh, a professor of applied mathematics, Vikram Singhi. Um, that possibility is not 1 in 10, okay? It's not 1 in 100, it's not 1 in a million, but it is 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. I don't even know what that number is. Okay? <laughs> um, it's, it's a pretty small number, okay? 10 to the power of 6 is a million. So put that in perspective, uh, perspective. 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000, the possibility of the human enzyme coming together by random chance. So this type of structure found in these processes uh, did not come through evolution and random change. So that's one discovery. Okay, the um, you know the Big Bang theory points to God. Another discovery is the fine tuning of the universe. Scientists are telling us that the details of the universe need to be so finely tuned on a razor's edge, okay, for life to be possible. One Cambridge astronomer likened it to getting all these parameters right to a tornado blowing through a junkyard and it just happens to produce a perfect uh, Boeing 747 airplane. An Oxford physicist says that the difference in the properties you could have and still get life is less than one one part in 10 raised to 10 raised again to 123. Again, I don't know what that number is. And he says if you tried to print out that percentage it cannot be done uh, because we don't have enough paper. Okay? In fact, all the paper in the universe—I uh, mean, all the matter turned in the universe turned into paper—would not. Ha- you would still not have enough to print out that number. Um, so these are the, the types of odds that we're talking about if the universe was created by chance, okay? just by random um, randomness. But what if it is the case that there is an intelligence behind the universe? Okay? Now, we have an explanation for that, okay? Here's an amazing statement from Richard Dawkins. Um, amazing statement. Um, he uh, hypothesized, okay, with this, you know, trying to figure this out. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me throw this out. That life on earth may have been seeded here from intelligent alien life elsewhere. That's his response, right? Okay? Which means he doesn't have a bias against intelligent design, just divine design. You know, so this fine-tuning, the universe that we uh, observe so finely tuned to support life that even small deviations in these properties, you know, there's over 80 of them, you know, subatomic forces, gravitational forces, a level of ent- entropy or the organization of the universe, all of these things, okay, if they were off just by a little bit, life couldn't exist anywhere. Okay? This is not a dis- uh, disputed fact. Non-Christian scientists, atheists, that are honest, acknowledge this. Frederick Boyle, an atheist, said that when we look at the universe around us, it's like someone has been monkeying with the physics so that life could exist on this planet. That's an atheist saying that. He's honest, at least. So this fine-tuning suggests a fine-tuner who tuned it this way. So that's another property. Um, fine-tuning of the universe. Another discovery is the regularity of the universe. Okay? Why do we expect that when we wake up tomorrow, um, we just expect that things will carry on in a regular, stable way? Why should we assume gravity to continue to behave in the way it does, operating with regularity? If you fall out of bed in the morning, you're going to hit the floor. Okay? Every time, like the Groundhog Day. If you've seen that movie, it's going to occur over and over again. The regularity of the universe. Well, well, God's the only answer to that question, okay? To have this sort of regularity, this stability to the universe that actually supports the entire scientific process. Okay. If you didn't have this regularity, you couldn't do science. You couldn't control for it. Okay. You you couldn't. Use controls in your experimental design. Um, So, um, you know, completely to the contrary, uh, thinking that science disproves God, only God proves science. So these uh, important discoveries point to the existence of God, not against the existence of God. You won't be tested on that, guys. Okay, so... Now, okay, so we've looked at the conflict between science um, and faith. We've looked at some apologetics here. Now, let's, let's move to where faith and science intersect together. And I want to present some excerpts from an interview, um, an interview with uh, Abdu Murray. You may have heard of him, maybe not. He, uh, he's with uh, Ravi Zacharias' his international ministry team. He's several books out, one um, called Saving Truth. But I'm going to uh, steal shamelessly from him as I have all the other references here, he's, he's, he states, <clears throat> if you're going to have a full orbital view of the world with knowledge about the way things work, okay, there's a specific revelation that comes from the Bible that tells you a lot of things about who we are, who God is, okay, but is also augmented um, by his other revelation, which is the world around us, okay? the physical world, the universe, the earth, us in our bodies. And the Apostle Paul talks about that you know, in, in Athens, this, this specific revelation to the word of God and the general revelation that is around us, the created order um, that he speaks of and sort of shows this fingerprint of a creator all around us, okay. this designer, and as Murray says, more of an artist than a designer. A designer who uses art to do that. And Paul in in Acts um, uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 24, uh, that John uh, read earlier. um, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. The Bible says these two things, the specific and general revelation, are part of reality. They are part of reality, and then if they are, then they should be consistent. God and the created world. In Psalms 19, I love this. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the end of the world. And then in Romans 1, what John um, said earlier, read earlier, since what, we, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So these rev- revelations about God and uh, creation, they can overlap, and we need to explore both of these okay, to understand either. Uh, and this opens up the whole world um, to everybody in a matter, uh, in a way that, that, that really matters to our heart and our minds. Okay? M- Murray points out, <clears throat> um, and, I, and I have witnessed this uh, before, uh, there's a lot of tension between science and faith, and this comes from the extremes. Okay, um, fundamental Christians, and I'm using that in a, in a slightly negative way here, uh, fundamental Christians think scientists are out to disprove the Bible. And then there are scientists that think um, that, um, you know, the Bible teaches you not to look at the world, to shut yourself off from exploring uh, the world. Just believe what the Bible says by faith, not by evidence. Uh, don't use your mind, okay? Well, I mean, this creates the tension between the the two. Both extremes are saying to each other, I don't trust you. Uh, But somewhere in the middle, we have people that have honest questions. Um, They want to know, does the Bible have something to inform me about my life? And can science contribute? The tragedy here is that both of these poles, these extremes, are shouting at each other past the middle okay, um, the, the, they're bypassing the middle, okay, of these people who are engaged in serious questions, in serious inquiry. So as Murray goes on to say, we want to get into a healthy dialogue, okay, uh, in the middle and not spend time battling the extremes because you won't make any progress, you okay? um, We need different opinions to come to the table and speak, We need then to look critically at the ideas, at the worldviews, to see if they conform to reality. Can we use our faculties and reasoning abilities to say that this conforms to reality in this area and this conforms in another area? And is there overlap? We need to be open about these things. We don't Need to, um, I mean, we, we um, you know, avoid shutting each other out. Uh, and a lot of times that does happen. If you try to bring up matters of uh, science and faith, sometimes the wall goes up. You Just back off and walk away and pray that the spirit will, will work in that person's life. Um, it happens, and I've, uh, I've been involved in that uh, with students over the years. So as Christians, we can't shut out what science says, okay? but as scientists or somebody who wants to look at life in a scientific way, you cannot shut out the realities that the Bible speaks to. Okay? If you allow for both to come to the table, and uh, then you can have real discussion. If you don't let people come and discuss what's important to them, then you're just not having a discussion. As I mentioned, you're having an argument, and it's not um, productive at all. So as Murray says, we need to bring both our faith and spirit and cognitive reasoning to the table. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, not the removal of your mind. Okay? I mean, if you're, a, uh, if you're a professional, you're an engineer, for example, by day, and you come to church and you just shut it all off, you, know, you ignore those things from your education or from your experience you know, like it's Bible time now. Let's all shut our mind off. That's not what the Bible actually tells you to do, okay? Be transformed by that constant state of renewal. And that should uh, form every aspect of your lives, whether it's intellectual, looking at the world around us that God created for us, or it's the spiritual, looking inwardly to see how God has either a plan for us or something that informs us about our lives. We have to be Open to these things, and Scripture demands that we do. Okay? That we bring our mind. And Isaiah 1, chapter one verse eighteen: Come, let us reason. Okay? Proverbs twenty-five: It is the glory of God to conceal things; it is the glory of kings to seek them out. And that is what discovery is all about. Right? Science is all about the discovery of those things God has concealed for the sheer delight of seeing us learn. Uh, so God not only invites us to, to, um, into the discovery, but he has wired us uh, for it. He delights in our learning. And throughout history, the church has fostered and endorsed and funded scientific research. Okay? Universities have been started with the intent that the general revelation around us Uh, The world, the universe, will be shown to be compatible with the specific revelation we find in Scripture. Murray says what we find in science informs about what we know from the Bible, but the Bible also informs what we know from science. There is significant overlap. Science tells us the world is ordered, and faith tells us who ordered it. And how it was ordered. Matters of faith um, and matters of religious inquiry. Get to who did it and why he did it. Now there's a moral element uh, from the Bible that can inform. And there's a physical element about what the moral element says. For example, in other words, what the Bible teaches about spirituality and morality. And about how to interact with each other. okay, That can tell us how we can do good science. Okay? But what we learn from science can cause us to be in awe about what God has done in creating us, from the DNA to the universe um, to all of these things. Now, <clears throat> we do have to recognize that there are, there are some questions that a purely scientific or naturalistic worldview cannot answer. Okay? Science or naturalism Again, a definition is, uh, is about studying the natural world, okay? Science is about discovering what you can measure, what you can test repeatedly, okay? So it's specifically uh, limited to the natural world, but the existence of a common pool of moral values points to the existence of a transcendent force uh, beyond mere scientific laws. So just as strong okay, is the obvious reality that we are moral beings. Okay? Um, we're capable of understanding the difference between right and wrong. There is no scientific route to uh, ethics like this. Physics cannot inspire our concern for others. That has existed okay, in human societies from, from the beginning of time. Science cannot tell you things beyond the natural ro- world like our thought life or all these morality issues. Science cannot ultimately be the way in which we know what is good or bad in terms of morality. Science can't even tell us if morality exists. So if you're a person of faith, and I hope most of us are here, what does that word faith mean? It does not mean I believe something despite contrary evidence or despite no evidence. You look at the Bible. Is there any instance that someone advocated belief without any evidence whatsoever? Every time God asked the children of Israel to trust him, to follow him, it's based on a miracle that he just did. He just proved himself trustworthy. The resurrection of Jesus. This is the very exclamation point here that he can be trusted. Uh, Murray was asked uh, by, uh, by someone, Why do you believe in the Bible? Well, he said, because Jesus taught it as a word of God, and he rose from the dead. And guys who rose from the dead have credibility. (laughs) So it was a demonstration right there that he can be trusted. So faith is not belief without evidence. It is belief in that which was promised, because the person who promised it was trustworthy. He's proven it through evidence. I love Doubting Thomas. Um, well, Doubting Thomas, he, he really had a um, good scientific mind here. He didn't want to believe his buddies. Okay? He wanted to see the evidence himself, and Doubting Thomas got the evidence with G, which Jesus provided. Okay? Now, so it, that, it's true that a person with a scientific mind or bent or naturalistic bent, they have to have faith too. Okay? Let's think about this. Okay? You sit down on a chair. My guess is that uh, you did not test the load-bearing strength of the chair. Yeah. Why? Because you took it on faith that it would hold up your weight. Okay. Probably because of evidence. Okay. You've seen others sit down on that chair. Um, you've seen chairs like this that tend to support your weight. Now, not all of them will. Okay. I mean, there's a chance that it'll crush under your weight. But did you test it? Okay. No, you took it on faith. Do you did you know that the um, um, the Higgs boson particle exists? Do you know that subatomic particle exists? Scientists have told you that, okay, but were you there? Okay, did you see it yourself? You took it on faith, but there's reasonable evidence uh, for you to do that. Murray goes on to say, you you can't know these things, okay? So faith is a real part of all life which means that a person of faith shouldn't be afraid of discovery because if faith is valid, then the discoveries will corroborate and mesh with their faith. Discoveries will not contradict your, your faith. Okay, well, I'll close here um, uh, with uh, why being a scientist deepens my, my faith in God. As a young boy, growing up in Florida, um, I just loved being outdoors, okay, in the ocean, diving for sand dollars, uh, swimming in sinkholes in the woods, uh, chasing butterflies, catching butterflies, killing bu- butterflies, mounting butterflies. I had a huge bug collection, you know, catching fish and snakes. Um, it was all fascinating um, to me. But as I grew, um, I tended to, uh, to lose that sense of wonder. But becoming a scientist has helped me recapture that sense of wonder, as Ravi Zacharias describes in one of his books. And so an example here. For the last 25 years, I've been uh, conducting research on a freshwater invertebrate, Daphnia magna. Is it up there? They're they're, they're very important in uh, aquatic uh, uh, food webs. Um, Yeah, that's not the uh, actual life size. They're very small, um, about <laughs> four, four meters. They have, they have large talons, you know. Um, but um, they're, they're very important in, in aquatic food webs. They, they graze on algae, and they, they help maintain water, water quality. So, and they're also important food, very important food source for larval um, fish. If daphnids are eliminated okay, from a pond okay, due to a chemical uh, pollution or, or, or whatever, um, the algae will overgrow. Water quality will decline. Fish will die. That whole ecosystem could collapse. Um, so, that, so they're extremely, extremely important. Um, the species, is, this particular species is, is quite amazing. In good conditions, meaning in spring and summer, they only produce females. Okay? They clone themselves. Okay? Asexual reproduction from some of you biology majors, parthenogenetic reproduction. Um, but during fall and winter, the adults die. But before they do this, they produce males. Okay, the the, the world of daphnids is usually female until things get bad and they need a male. Okay, now that's just okay. I, I'm in a lot of trouble when I go home. Okay? but uh, I'm just this is biology here. Okay, God designed it. Um, They produce males and the resulting egg through fertilization is a resistant egg. It's called a winter egg, resistant to harsh environmental conditions. If the lake freezes up or dries up, everything will die in terms of the adults will die, but these eggs will survive. And they have found these eggs in mud packs, 40 years old. And they take the, uh, the, the egg and they put the egg in water. What swims out? A female ready to restart the population again. Um, It's it's an amazing, amazing survival adaptation, an amazing design by God to protect this little but important species. And so science is is just a wonderful tool for understanding the biochemical process of this Um, just by shortening the length of the the day. I asked my graduate student, few years ago to, to look at this mechanism, you know, and we know that in the lab we have 16 hours of light. We want good conditions, but if we reduce that light to eight hours, okay, like in the in the fall winter when the days grow shorter, they will produce males, uh, and I said, well, okay, what is going on with that? Now, my graduate student is an atheist, and I've had a lot of um, graduate students that um, either agnostic or atheist, not that I recruit them, maybe God sends them my way. But, um, and so I said, what causes that, okay? Well, he we found out that the light, okay, that fluctuation in that light will cause a fluctuation in histamine, okay? That's a, a neurotransmitter, and you probably know if you have a histamine released in your body, that's not that good, okay? It can cause a pretty serious allergic reaction. But in daphnia, it's, it's it's very essential. This change in histamine will signal an enzyme to produce a hormone that tells the ovary to produce males. Okay? That's incredible design. And So I just see the scientific research as deepening my faith. And my graduate student who uh, uh, was involved uh, in this uh, discovery, uh, we still talk, we're still close, and uh, someday I, I uh, pray that... Uh, you know the spirit will will really impact his life and bring him alive. Well, I agree with Dr. Jennifer Wiseman, a Christian astrophysicist. Uh, she said this during a, a recent interview: "God's responsible for everything. So by studying more of nature, you're you're enriching your understanding of God. When you talk to people, and you find that most people really realize that there are deeper questions in life that science can't fully address." And a lot of them don't really see why there should be any conflict. Okay? But I love science because I love the process of solving the riddle and uncovering the clues to unraveling whatever problem I'm trying to solve. I just love the process of this, the discovery and not just the end result. The process of the discovery and bringing students along with in that journey and being able to have those dialogues, conversations with them, um, and, and praying that um, they will, some of those will, will take home. But fortunately for us scientists, there's an infinite number of puzzles here uh, to tackle in the universe and things to discover. And just thank God for keeping a few things secret. Let's pray. Father, we seek to understand more about you and the way you made the world.